0: He wants us to see the illustration of one who is interceding and prevailing in that intercession before the Lord. And we want to make note of the fact that her request stares reality in the face. She looks open-eyed at the reality of what she is here to ask Jesus to do. She comes to Jesus and she says, my daughter is demonized. She is possessed of demons. Literally in Matthew's gospel, she says, she is severely demonized. So notice how the woman did not come to Jesus Saying to Jesus, listen, can you help my daughter? She acts kind of weird sometimes. She's she's got some social problems. Sometimes she scares her friends. Sometimes she says some some really disturbing things. Sometimes she can be really cruel to her little brother. And we're kind of worried about her. We're worried that something might not, just might not be right about her. Instead, she comes to Jesus completely honest and completely forthright to say, my daughter is demonized. She's severely demonized. She doesn't lessen it. She doesn't try to negate the reality of it. She doesn't try to hide it with euphemisms. Instead, she embraces the truth with what drives her to Jesus. Imagine the social stigma that probably existed with a demonized daughter. How did your daughter get demonized? What sort of household do you have that you allowed a demon to come into your daughter? What sort of mother are you? What sort of influences did you allow your daughter to come in contact with? Imagine the stigma that would have gone along with that. But instead of hiding behind that and trying to come to Jesus with the request that words it in some way that's just not quite as abrasive or harsh as the reality really is, she instead comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is severely demonized. Stigma be damned. My daughter is demonized and I'm here to plead with you that you would help, that you would cast the demon out. So in reality, she says to Jesus exactly what the problem is and she confronts it and she pleads that Jesus would help her. Some of us perhaps need to pray to the Lord on behalf of others, embracing that same tactic. Some of us perhaps as we pray for our loved ones, perhaps we need to face reality and instead of going before God to say, God, I I just wish that little Johnny or I just wish that little Mary, I just wish that you'd make them more spiritually excited about you. I just wish that you would invigorate their faith and get them excited. Instead, some of us need to come before the Lord and say little Johnny is lost. Little Mary is damned to hell unless you interact in her heart. She made a profession when she was eight, and for the last 23 years, she's showed zero spiritual fruit. And she's given no reason for us to believe that she's part of the family of God. And so, Lord, I just plead that you would act on her heart to save her. But instead, especially with loved ones, sometimes that reality can be hard to face. Sometimes we would rather think of it as, Lord, we just really wish that you would invigorate their faith and get them excited about their faith. And perhaps the prayer that God wants to hear from us is that my precious loved one is lost. My precious loved one needs a radical interaction from the Spirit of God to bring conviction of their sin and a radical regeneration into their heart. Perhaps that's the prayer that God would most like to hear on the lips of those who are interceding for them. Look with me in your notes at chapter First John, John chapter one and verses eight and nine. Now First John chapter eight or chapter one and these verses John is speaking about how we go before the Lord for our own requests for our own sins. But nevertheless, the same principle, the same point that John's going to make applies in the same way when we pray for others. John says this. He says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we come before God and we say God, I we really don't have sin, or really, I guess more like how we would be tempted to pray would be to minimize our our sin. Lord, just forgive me, Lord, for that for that thought, that little thought that crossed my mind today. Forgive me, Lord, for that little thought. You know, I don't, I really, I wasn't lusting, but I just had that little thought pop in my head. Forgive me of that, Lord. John says if that's the way you come to the Lord, you're first of all deceiving yourself. Then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Not if we come before him with this little minimalistic idea, this little euphemistic way of describing the sin. And we say, Lord, just forgive me of that little, that little errant thought. Instead, John says, come before the Lord and say to him, forgive me for lusting in my heart for that woman or for that man. Cleanse me of those unclean thoughts. Confess that sin. Then John says he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin. Does the same principle not also apply when we go before the Lord on behalf of others? God doesn't need to hear our minimalistic descriptions. He doesn't need to hear our euphemistic descriptions. He wants us to come before him facing the reality of our deep need of the one whom we are praying for, of their deep need for God's action in their life. So first of all, he comes, she comes to him, Jesus, my daughter is severely demonized. Secondly, notice how she comes to him with the full engagement of her heart. Her her heart is fully engaged with the need of her daughter if anything, the story comes across to us as a powerful illustration of a mother whose heart is absolutely broken over the spiritual need of her daughter. And so on the one hand, it's easy to see, well, that's a mother praying for her daughter. Of course, she's going to have her heart fully engaged in pleading for this woman. And while that may be true, pleading for her daughter, and while that may be true, what God wants us to see by Jesus pointing out May it be done as you desire. By pointing that out, God wants us to see not the the genetic bond between a mother and a father. He wants us to see the illustration of one who is interceding and prevailing in that intercession before the Lord. And she comes to the Lord Firstly, with an honest assessment of the need. Secondly, with a heart that's fully engaged as she just pleads with the Lord. You can just tell. We don't need to walk back through the passage to see that, do we? That her heart is fully engaged. She's fully committed to giving everything she possibly can to plead that Jesus would act on behalf of her daughter. So intercessory prayer that prevails before the Lord is prayer in which we go before the Lord with our heart fully burdened for the one whom we are praying for. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. In this passage, Peter says this. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's work through that verse backwards, right? Peter says this. He says, Live with your spouses, live with your wives in an understanding way, so that there won't be this hindrance to your prayer. So if we go backwards and we look and we say a hindrance to our prayers, in order to avoid the hindrance to the prayers, in order for the prayer to be heard, one thing we must be careful to avoid is this non-understanding, this hardness of heart, this callousness toward a spouse, toward the wife. Or to put it another way, a disengagement of the heart. Peter says... You should steer clear of that so that among other things, your prayers will be heard. Do you see the connection? Peter says a hardness of heart, a callousness of heart should lead you to expect that God won't hear your prayers. So going backwards from that, we see that Peter's saying the same thing here, the engagement of the heart. When you pray for others in an intercessory manner, then just like this woman coming before Jesus, God wants to see an engagement of the heart. He wants to see your heart burdened with the one that you're praying for. He doesn't want to just hear words lifted up, words and phrases lifted up with a heart that's sort of disengaged, maybe thinking in the back of your mind. You're sure it would be nice if God would do this in this other person's life, but I do have my own problems. I do have my own life. You know, uh, I've got my own things to worry about. I know I'm supposed to pray for others and that's what I'm doing now, but my heart is really burdened with my own troubles. God seeks for His children to come before Him with hearts that are heavily burdened for the needs of those that they are praying for. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Look at Paul's heart here. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning His ethnic brethren, his Jewish brethren. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. You hear Paul's heart there. He's saying my heart is fully engaged in this request. My heart is fully engaged with my ethnic cousins, my ethnic brothers and sisters. So she comes to him with this heart that's fully engaged over the desperate need of her daughter. But also she comes to him with a sense of identification. The one whom she pleads for, the woman, the mother, identifies with the daughter to such a degree that literally it becomes like the the request for the daughter is also the request for the mother because she's so closely identified with her. Looking in Matthew's account, this will make sense once we look here in Matthew's account, what we read in Matthew's account two times is this. The woman comes before Jesus and if we look in verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, have mercy on... And if you're in Matthew, the next word is me. Have mercy on me. And then there's this little interchange between the two. And then eventually she came and knelt before Him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Do you see how the need for deliverance for her daughter became her need. She's so closely identified with that that she could say, Lord, help me. Again, on one hand, that's easy to understand. This is a mother praying for her daughter. But that's not what God wants us to see in this passage as holding her up as an illustration of prevailing intercessory prayer. God wants us to see that aspect that in coming before Him and pleading for her daughter, The need is so close to her heart, so close to her soul, that it's as though she's asking for Jesus to help her. The connection, the bond, the need is so great that she comes before Him in that way. Engaging Jesus on behalf of her daughter and pleading with Him as though she were pleading for her own needs. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3. Paul says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You hear Paul's identification with his lost Jewish brethren? He says, if I could make this exchange, I would exchange my life in Christ for theirs. Or think of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. Brothers, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. Now, when the writer to the Hebrews says, remember those in prison, what he's not saying is, have thoughts of those in prison cross your mind. Just don't forget about those in prison. You just remember them. Don't forget about them there. That's not what the writer's saying. He's saying when he says remember those in prison, he says, he's saying remember them in prayer. Go before the Lord praying for those in prison as if you were in prison with them. Do you think that you would pray more fervently if you were the one behind bars? Do you think that your prayers would be more earnest and more heartfelt if you were the one behind bars? And that's what the writer is saying. When you take them before the Lord in prayer, do it as if you are the one who is behind those prison bars yourself. So her identification, she's got this heart burden. She identifies so closely with her daughter that she asks Jesus to help. And she can even say, just help me have mercy on me. She also comes to Jesus with this open-eyed, realistic evaluation of the severity of the problem. And then lastly, she comes before Jesus with this resolute conviction that Christ will hear and Christ will act. So in the story, one thing that comes across quite plain and quite clear is that she will not be told no. Jesus has this little interchange. He pretends to not want to answer her. He says to the disciples with her right there in front of Him, He says, you know, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and yet she will not be deterred because her belief in those three realities, those three things that Jesus is able to help, Jesus is willing to help, and Jesus will make himself accessible to her. Her belief in those three things is so resolute that even though Jesus is, in a sense, putting on a show that he's not interested in helping her, that doesn't deter her. She comes with this resolute conviction that God will help her, that Jesus will help her. Reminds me of blind Bartimaeus. Remember blind Bartimaeus in the story as Jesus is leaving out of Jericho there and there's this blind Bartimaeus fellow, he's coming and he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And all the people around him are saying, shut up, shut up, quiet. But he won't shut up. Son of David, have mercy. Quiet, quiet. Son of David. He just gets louder and louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. The same type of thing. As she comes to Jesus, she, just like Jacob in the Old Testament, will not be turned away. Look at Romans chapter 4, and verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Or look with me at James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So James here is not specifically talking about intercessory requests. He's just talking about prayer in general. But his point is still just as applicable when he says... When you come before the Lord and ask of the Lord, if you ask with a double heart, if you ask with a doubting heart, not fully convinced that He is willing and able to help, then James says you're wasting your time. He's not going to. Now, brothers and sisters, I mean that's something that I can fall prey to just as easily as anyone else in the room, if not more so. Just a spirit of cynicism, just a spirit to say, you know, I've come with this request for years now. I come with, I've come with this request many times before and I can fall prey to that as well. But our scriptures say to us, do not allow yourself to fall prey to that spirit of un- unbelief, the spirit of doubt in which you begin to doubt that the Lord is actually willing and able to help with the request that you bring to Him on behalf of another. So these, these are the, the ways that she comes to Jesus with this resolute belief, with this resolute faith with a heart that's fully engaged, fully burdened, heavily burdened for the one that she prays for, with an identification with the one who is in need, and with a full realization and a full admittance of the reality of the need that she's bringing.